Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hi, Paul here. Now remember this series has strong language, descriptions of hunting and fatal accidents. There were no restrictions or rules and there was no one watching what they were doing. We were all conscious that there was no escape if you had a, um, a bad injury. I suppose they stretched the limits a bit, but they got away with it. Life is still a bloody hard slog for colours. Oh yes, numbers of times you run short of food. Between the risk of accident... Fell down the slip and it caught steak up under my ribs. Shit, it was painful. And it was winter. You try and sleep in cold ground for <laughs> crook ribs. <laughs> I pulled two teeth out with my pliers. It was bloody agony, but it had to be done. And the loneliness. It's a funny thing when you've been by yourself for a long time, you don't want to see anybody. But in other ways, things are looking up for the hunters. They'd build huts in the hills and every hut had tucker in it. The days of surviving off tin peas and moss are gone. In the middle of the block was your base hut and you had all your gear there and you just drifted around from hut to hut. No more sharing your sleeping bag with cave wetters or lugging a 40-kilo pack on your back. You only had your sleeping bag and a plate and a mug and a spoon, that's all you carried. And you just went from hut to hut or stayed in a little bivvy on the top, but they all had tucker in it. I'm Paul Roy and this is Dear Wars, episode 2. Good keen men. By 1956, Internal Affairs, that miserable bunch, had moved on and been replaced by the Forest Service. Things get better for the colours, but with no formal interviews, it's hit and miss who will perform well and who can't hack the conditions. Dick Deeker from near Dunedin is a case in point. I was always keen on hunting. I was hopeless at school. I went to Tory High School, but I didn't do any good at school. I was hopeless. You know, in a class of 32, I was position number 32. And I was about a year older than all the other kids there, and all I was interested in was hunting. When I finally did leave school, my parents were very disappointed when I told them that I was going to go and join the Forest Service deer culling. You know, they were very disappointed that, that I didn't sort of pursue some sort of career like a lot of my friends finished up doing various degrees and then some of them become school teachers and all sorts of stuff, you know. When Dick started working for me, I picked him up off the New Zealand Railways bus outside Mossburn service stores where I was living at the time. That's John von Tunzelman. You remember him? He's a veteran colour by now. He's Dick's field officer and takes him into the hills around Southland for the first time. Took him home for lunch, and he was that shy, he wouldn't even look a Loman, my wife, in the eye. But he ate a great big lunch, and we took him out to the hills. 
and we had to drive so far in Wales Forest Service Land Rover and then walk for about a mile to this camp. Just before we got to the camp, we had to cross a river. So Loma and I just ploughed in boots and all up the other side and towards the camp and looked back and here's Dick taking his boots and socks off. I thought, oh, gee, I'm not too sure about this guy. He's only 17 years old. Anyway, we got to the camp. He put his boots and socks back on and get nice and dry. How's we wet? I had a fire going by this time. We were having a brew. And he started pulling stuff out of his pack because that was where he was going to be staying to work for a few days. And the first thing that comes out of his pack is a hot water bottle. And then the next thing that comes out is a fruitcake mum's built him. <laughs> I thought, oh, 17 years old, and he doesn't like getting his feet wet, and he carries around a hot water bottle. In three weeks, he'll be gone. Well, it looked like a kid, apparently. Like They reckon I looked like I was only about 14 or 15, but I wasn't, you know. And John von Tunsman met me at Mossburn, and then he took me up to the Aparima hut, told us, you know, give us a, a very rough map on, on where to go, you know, and, and where the huts are, and just left me there, and that was it. It is almost impossible to tell who is going to hack it in the hills. John von Tunzelman was sure young Dick Deeker would never make it. Believe it or not, in three weeks, he was my top tally man in the Takatibus. He never, ever looked back. The other guys couldn't hold a candle to him for hunting. So Dick Deeker, the boy who doesn't like getting his feet wet and carries a hot water bottle, has the last laugh. I remember going up Coal Creek one time in the Waterloo Valley to see how Dick was getting on. There's a really rough old camp there. And there's no sign of him. No sign of him at all, but obviously he'd been there because the fire was just a few embers and there's a billy there that had a bit of tea in it and so on. And about 11 o'clock in the morning he came in. It was raining actually, it was a wet day. And I looked at him, bare feet. I said, that? where's your boots? He said, oh, they're my backpack. He said, too damn noisy wearing boots in the bush on a bush stalk. He said, <laughs> he had about seven or eight deer tails hanging on his belt. He was just a natural. Not only was Dick a natural, he was making good money too. I worked hard. I even went out in the days when it was raining. You know, I might only get two or three deer, but it makes six pounds. A lot of me mates were even getting that for a week. I know one day I got 18 at two pound a deer, which is 36 pound. My father was only making 18 or 20 pound a week, and he was a, a carpenter, you know, in Dunedin, so I was making twice what he'd make in a week in one day. We're back with my mate Harvey Hutton, who's flying us around today. Just landed outside the hut, getting out, and I'm going to go take a walk and have a look and see what's what in the hut. So this is one of the old old huts here, eh? This is well, it says it was built 1960, and I think it was called a S81 because they used to do four bunk, six bunk, and they did the little um, ones up on the 
on the tops there, a little doll rat one. But this is pretty well the same configuration as most of them, and I think they built something, sorry, I think they built something like 650 of them, roughly, between 1957 and 1970. So they went on a real bloody yeah. spree of building, eh? And they're all built for the colours, weren't they? All built for the colours, yeah, that's why we've got the system, they're all yeah. built for the colours. Yeah. And they're meant to be like four hours apart, I mean, they're not really, but in some places they are, so they could just travel with their rifle in there. Yeah. Really, it's the best, almost the best system yes. in the world, probably. The, the aeroplanes used to fly around food drops with their parachutes. I used to throw them out and they parachute down so they, because they, to get the supplies in. The Forest Service built all these huts over a 20-year period when they took over the deer culling program. And part of the reason for that was that they realised the job wasn't over yet. One report said, 20 years into the whole culling business, the hunters had shot just 10% of the deer. So now, the Forest Service was giving the men what they needed to do the job properly. All right, so shall we go and have a, have a look inside and see? I mean, I, I've done a lot of tramping around New Zealand, so I've been to a lot of these huts, and this is, so far, it's very familiar. So outside, there's a sort of wood box where you can throw all your wood and stuff and keep it dry in theory. And inside, oh, this is a real nice hut. It's uh, well, ply lines. There's four, four bunks. And, oh, it's quite a nice little bench which looks out over the river, stainless steel bench. And actually in this hut, there's a, uh, what do you call these stoves? I think pot belly stove. Pot bellies, yeah. But in the old days, this would have been an open fire. Then there were the airdrops of food, a real godsend for the colours. Hurry, hurry, resident John Knight. Yep, another John. Was 19 when he came over to New Zealand from Australia for a week's holiday. And 55 years later, it's still here. John was a colour at a time when anything you needed came in on your back. You had to carry all the tin food. You had to carry all the 80-pound bags of sugar, flour. You had to carry it all, you know. We were backwards and forwards if you couldn't get it in there to your tent camp. But you have to keep going backwards and forwards carrying it. So you spent months or something on your back. When you come out with nothing, you felt like you're going to fall over because you were unstable, your, your body... You just weren't used to it. <laughs> so the airdrops to huts and tent camps were especially welcome, although it was all a bit hit and miss at the start and a steep learning curve for both pilots and the colours on the ground. And that year, in the wisdom, the department decided they'd hide this tiger moth and fly the, the stuff in. Fred Dixon, an early colour who didn't have the luxury of huts or even sufficient food in the early days. You may remember he lived in a cave with wetters and rats gnawing on his bed at night. He's there at one of the very early drops. A lot of the places were very hard to get into. The plane could come up the valleys and it had to be able to turn in. They'd sort of fly up the gully but unfortunately they threw the whole lot just about at once. Otherwise the plane wouldn't be bloody airborne. Sometimes you were lucky if it got caught up in the tree, you'd get it. But all the drops that I had were all on riverbeds, and of course when they hit the riverbed, they flew to pieces and you got nothing out of them. 
The tiger moth was replaced by the more suitable oster and cessnas, and later still the larger dornier, which could carry supplies for several camps. Now Jock Fisher has already been working as a colour for four years, when he's called in for a chat with his boss. He said, if you're interested, there's a job going as a field officer on the West Coast. One of Jock's new responsibilities as a field officer is supervising airdrops. When you do an airdrop, the field officer is responsible for getting everything ready, packed and stacked, ready for the plane to take. You went to the local stores and you ordered so many cases of baked beans, so much condensed milk, so many <laughs> boxes of tea, uh, rice and all of those things. Then he goes with the plane because he's the only one who knows where his stuff is going. Post-war, a new generation of colours were coming into the service. I was born in Dunedin in 1940. I went to school in Dunedin. Well, when I should have been going to school, I was driving cattle down the abattoir and that sort of thing. That's one of the reasons I left school, because I was told I would be better to go. So this is John Fleming. Yes, another John, who had the usual casual introduction to deer shooting so common in those freer times. Oh, I used to go out with my father and it was a good friend who lived here who was an original colour, Ike Carson. And there was a, a butter box, which Dad set up down the road, but, and went out, paced out roughly 100 yards and said, righto, there's the target. If you can hit that, you can take the rifle with you. So I went there and, or put it this way, I hit the box. How young would you have been when you shot your first deer? Oh, like a rough guess, about 13 or 14. It was not far to go to any hunting. You're right at your back doorstep. The mob of deer across the other side, up in the scrub, and I thought, right, I'll go across and grab them. There was something like about 20 deer there. I had the 10 shot mag, and I think the 10th shot, one fell over. And then I said, Bogart, I'm going hunting. John's on his way to becoming a government colour, but not without opposition. Parental disapproval is a common theme among colours. My mother didn't think much of it. <laughs> I remember her listening to a telephone conversation with one of her friends. She said, oh, do you believe he's going to wants to be a deer colour? You know, I thought, yeah, I am near. <laughs> Another keen to make a go of it, but facing a sceptical family, is Dave Richardson. Dave, now living outside Blenheim, has had a very full and adventurous life in the venison industry, as both a ground hunter and chopper pilot. My name's Robert David Earl Richardson, and I was born in 1940. In a little town called Tukukino in Hawke's Bay, my parents were getting over the war when 40, you know, when I was five. No way that I could speak during breakfast because the war news was on. We were all poor and mum made all our clothes, whether it was out of uh, sacking or whatever. There was always jobs we had to do. You know, I had to pump the water and milk the cow and got the wood in. 
they got to boot up the backside if they didn't get to do your jobs, you know. My father was a carpenter, and if you wanted a nail, you hadn't got one out of another bit of board. There's no such thing as going and getting a new nail. We had to get one out of an old piece of wood. If we wanted something, we had to make it. And that discipline sort of took me on in later years. It was a good, a good upbringing. In those days, we had um, the books coming out about deer culling, and there was a, a head shepherd on the place who had been an old culler. And of course, every weekend I was out shooting with him, and I learned a lot of him. I went to see old uh, Norm Gilmore Napier. He sort of interviewed me. I got accepted to go down, and, and I didn't have a rifle in those days. I used the old man's 3-0, which was a terrible thing. I asked him if I could get a loan of it, and I remember them taking me down to the plane. I had to get on a DC-3 in Napier, and I could hear him saying to my mother, oh, the bloody boy's mad. He'll be back in a week. Despite his mother's lack of enthusiasm, John Fleming has become a government shooter. You started round about the 20th of October, the start of the summer season. When you went in, it was stuff left over from the season before, so you sort of survived on that until you had the airdrop. You'd go with the pilot, he'd fly around out the site, and he'd zoom down onto it, and you'd be sitting there with your shoulder out the door with a bundle on your lap, and he would say, ready, steady, go. And you'd throw the thing out. There was a little bit of string. You had your finger in the string, and that tore the paper off the parachute. And the parachute opened and dropped. And it didn't have far to drop because you went very high, a couple of hundred feet at the highest. Waiting for the first airdrop was always a bit because you always packed stuff in because it was left over from the last season. So you sort of lived a bit frugally until that arrived. I remember watching the first airdrop come in. I was at Barrett's hut. Watched it come over the top and in. Good, and it was only a pretty small clearing that put them in. I thought, geez, how are they going to get them in there? We'd fly up the valley and then we'd come in round and come down and just over the treetop level. Sometimes we were down to 50 feet and we dropped straight into a fly camp. When you got to the end, there was the free drops, which was the bags of flour. And of course, those old bomber pilots, oh, they thought, this is great. We'll see if we can hit the tent camp. <laughs> and all came in dropped by Domney or Cessna. And they're all put on in cartons with a little parachute on them, and every box had the number of boxes that were going to be dropped at that particular camp, that, say, was 10, so everyone was marked 10, and then it would be number 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. So then if you couldn't find them, you looked up the trees or you looked in the river for the one that was missing. You had the basics, there would be a bag of spuds come in, you had the milk powder, you had the sugar and dried apricots, peas and beans. Sometimes they gave you the peas in one carton at one hut and the beans at the other. And it wasn't until later I started running the North Island boys and the guys from up Marlborough that got to know. And, oh, they, they had luxury. They had upside-down puddings and fruit, tins of fruit. Many of these pilots have flown in the war and can make an airdrop look easy. But there's still plenty of room for error. I actually had one situation where we were flying down the Tororoa 
through the chute out, and I, I must have hesitated or something, because the chute opened before it had fallen very far. And the next thing, it's wrapped on the tail. There's a bag of ammunition thumping on the bottom of the tail and the parachute over the top of it, banging away there. And then of course the pilot turned, turned his head around quick, he said, what's going on? I said, it's caught in the tail. Oh, quick. He did something and it came off the tail. And then he said, is the tail all right? Well, it looks to me all right, I said. So he said, all right, we'll do another run. So that was a fraction of excitement. <laughs> I bet it was. One of the things I noticed, I've always thought about it, was when we were doing airdrops, and that was before the helicopter time, the pilots were all ex-Air Force. Some of them were bomber pilots, some of them had been fighter pilots. We'd work hard all day airdropping and pushing it so as we could get in because we were trying to get in between the crook weather. And at night time, they always went to the pub and they drank beer by the gallons. And I used to think, Christ, they're bloody flying tomorrow and I'm flying with them. I'm sitting in the spare seat. But they did that to relax themselves and they must have learned that during the war. And yet they were all good pilots. Flying in the mountains is always tricky. Flying while biffing out food is another thing again. I was in the Hunter one time up the Hyde Bend, and I think the first three that came in, they just plummeted out. You could see it coming out, and I thought, oh, beauty, here it comes, because I hadn't had much to eat for a while. And they just came and hit the ground, and, oh, what's it going to be? And you go, there'd be the sugar and the tea and the be a bottle of tomato sauce and Worcester sauce, it was all mixed up with it, you know. <laughs> so you sort that all out, put the stuff away, bury the rest of it, because it saved your packing, you didn't. And this wouldn't be a story about South Island mountains if a Kia wasn't in it somewhere. And you'd go to pack it up, and the Kias get into your eardrops, especially the Merchant Mountains. And the Kias had got in and ripped things apart. But they were that good, they could, just that little lip on the tin of, say, beans or something there, they could pick them up and they'd strip the label off. At the start, you'd go out and you think, you know, what's that? And you'd shake it. you think, oh, that must be, or peas or something like that. And you'd go and shake it out. No, it would be apricot jam or something like that. You had a wee number underneath on every can was what it was. So you, I just kept in the diary that I had there that no ZK1444 was baked beans, etc, etc. And that worked out all right. If the colours had known what was happening back at the aircraft base, they might have considered themselves lucky to have got any drops at all. I can remember sitting in Hokitika for four or five days waiting for the weather to clear. And we're all sitting there and the pilots are going mad. And they said, there's only one way to fix the weather, to go out in the booze. As soon as we get out in the booze, well, <laughs> you can guarantee the next morning it'll be fine. So anyway, it was. That's exactly what happened. So anyway, I got up early and tapped on Tex Smith's window at six o'clock, woke him up. He said, oh, you go on up, put the jug of coffee on, and I'll be up in ten minutes. Anyway, I waited half an hour and he hadn't arrived. So I shot back down and he was still in bed. He came up and we flew all day. 
And at six o'clock that night, Stan Fulker, the senior field officer, come up to say, how are you getting on? He says, oh, I think you should knock off. The pilot looks buggered. So anyway, we went down to the pub for a beer. And Tex says, you know what time I got to bed last night? And I said, no. He says, half an hour before you woke me up. <laughs> I said, if I'd known that, I wouldn't have been flying with you. <laughs> Yeah, well, that, you know, that sort of situation carried on with the helicopters as well. Mm -hmm. There were no restrictions or rules, and there was no one watching what they were doing. I suppose they stretched their limits a bit, but they got away with it. I had a period of 11 weeks when all I had was venison and chamois. When the weather's bad, the drops simply don't happen and colours like Albie Lewis just have to grin and bear it. And that's all I had. I had no salt, sugar, tea, nothing. The reason why I didn't have the food was that I couldn't get back down the river to get across because of the flooding. Uh, like the airdrops couldn't get them owing to the weather conditions. It was a bit of a bugger, but never mind. Albie was just 14 when he shot his first deer. And that was with one of those martini... Henry Rifles, which of course only had a lever and you put one round in at a time. And I was just fortunate enough to put the one round in and bowl this thing over. I was quite proud of myself. And from then on, I just used to go up pigs, deer, all over the place. Round about 19, the bush got the better of me and I decided that I'd like to go deer cunning. Albie grew up in the North Island and became a colour in the 50s. His first posting was to the Landsborough River, just south of Mount Cook. This is tough country. I've been up it just the once. The river is glacier-fed, beautiful, but notoriously difficult and dangerous to cross. Even now, there's only one hut. In Albie's day, there were none and he was reliant on airdrops for food and ammunition. I never looked upon it as a hardship. That's physically. What I did notice was that there'd be sometimes at night black pitch could be pouring down the rain, didn't matter, and bugger. I could hear the aeroplane coming. So therefore there was a psychological something or other going on within my mind. But once daylight came, and I got up. That was it. Jock's got the same problems. Oh, yes. Uh, numbers of times you run short of food and uh, you'd be waiting. You'd have a drop booked for a certain time because you always knew when it was to come in, but the weather would be crook. And, uh, oh, you can wait up to six or seven days and you're running, you're running pretty low in Tucker. I remember being in the crop and waiting for the drop and nothing but wet weather, wet weather, wet weather. And we were down to boiling jam and venison. <laughs> so in the end we gave that up and we walked out. I had a great childhood. A lot of other kids my own age around the area and we'd play in the big bamboo thickets. Paddy Gordon was a child during the Second World War, growing up in both Whanganui and later Dunedin when his father changed jobs. Of course, there was a war going on, so it was only natural that we kids would be into war. We had nails on the end of bloody uh, bamboo sticks. And 
and have bow and arrows. Yeah, I had a great life in my earlier years, and I think that gave me the taste for going out into the wild. I loved animals, and I wanted to go work on a farm or something like that. I wasn't really a great academic by any means. Bad speller. <laughs> and it follows you around all your life. <laughs> Happily, being a poor speller doesn't stop Paddy from being a colour. They were looking for colours, and the base camp in Otago was at Queenstown. And so I got on well with the chief ranger of the forest, and I said, I'd love to do this. So he said, I'll get your form. He got me a form. I filled it out. Next thing I get is uh, the chief ranger coming up to me from the forest and says, you've got an appointment, mate, up at Queenstown. Pack your gear and bugger off. <laughs> By the time Paddy applies to be a colour, you have to attend a six-week training camp at Dipflat in Marlborough. No more chucking kids out in the bush with a gun and no map. Dip flats are take-no-prisoners kind of place, and there's a very high dropout rate. We'll get stuck into it more in the next episode. Most of our cooking was done on an open fire, and uh, every hut would have a selection of hooks. Paddy's made it through Dip Flat, and is now a deer colour at a time when huts and food drops are taken for granted. By having a selection of hooks when the fire is um, very hot, you have a very short hook, and keep it as high as you can, and as the fire dies down, you just change the, the hooks and uh, you, you lower the camp oven down lower onto the fire as required. And uh, when we're baking bread, one of the tests for the right temperature to bake bread was if you could hold your hand underneath the camp oven and the ashes of the fire for five seconds, it was about the right heat. If you had to pull it out quicker than that, it was too hot, so you just put the, uh, go up a hook. But having a hut to cook in, didn't guarantee any better tucker. It was, it was pouring bloody rain and I had to get up my turn to cook because a, a field officer with shooters still takes a turn at doing everything. There was three joggers in the camp. Jock Fisher again. I got outside and I, what the hell have I got here? I've got spaghetti and nothing else. I had a tin of spaghetti and a... Oh, that's right. We shot a couple of deer last night, a couple of stags. We dragged them. I'll split the heads open and I'll pull the brains out. So I pulled the brains out and mixed the spaghetti with the brains. <laughs> and, and cooked it all up and dished it up. No one said anything. No one objected. They all ate it. <laughs> As they say, hunger's good sauce. And the huts, though very welcome, bring their own problems. Something I still deal with when I'm in the hills today. They used to get your tea in those boxes, you mean the tea boxes, and they had the aluminium foil in it? John Fleming, one of the Johns. Oh, I had a bad run of them one time there, because you only had candles in the hut. You come in last thing, you get the fire going, right, good, and I was dry as anything for brew and everything going, and got the tea out, biffed in the billy, yep, went out, and it was still not sinking, you know. Oh, yeah, put it like that, and I'm drinking away and spitting it out. And it was mouse shit, which had grown up to the size of a rat shit because it had expanded a bit with all the water in it. In the light of day, the mice pulled all the aluminium, but a lot of it, they chewed it off and made a nest. So they actually reared their young in the bloody thing. Everyone talks about the mice. They'd run over your chest while you were asleep at night. Paddy Gordon. And run down the side of your sleeping bag and you hear them scuffling away around the floors and around the rafters and everything like that. 
Well, you had to have some type of trap that trapped while you weren't there, you know. And this there used to be the old 12-gallon drums around and cut the top off them. Some number eight wire and we'd lace it across the top, the drum, with a, a, a billy lid or something, um, something that you had spare around. And you'd thread that through the wire and put a bait on it. And they'd put it across the wire, stand on the lid into the water. And sometimes we'd come back a month later and the bucket was always half full of dead bloody mice. <laughs> and this worked bloody like a dream and it, it knocked them back significantly, but it doesn't take long for a few to get away or not get caught and they build up very quickly again. They would really pollute your beds and pollute uh, the mattresses would go off and you'd You'd pull them out, wash them down, because they did have those kind of canvas covers on them, and then you'd leave them out to dry and bring them in again, but they always smelt of urine. Oh, yeah, they were terrible things. You almost have to make a game out of it. I was in Price's hut. <laughs> I'd lie on the top bunk, and I'd get in a three-knot three, and I'd pull the bullet out, and I'd squeeze it into a potato and I'd lie there on the bunk, waiting until the mice come up by the fireplace. Boom! <laughs> here you go off. <laughs> and the jug in the bunk underneath it, they half asleep and they just jump out of the bunk. <laughs> and did that kill them or just frighten them being hit with a potato? Well, I don't kind of remember killing any. But it certainly frightened them. Mice or not, it's still an improvement on the earlier years. But one thing that hasn't changed is the isolation. It's a funny thing when you've been by yourself for a long time. You don't want to see anybody. This is Gerald Goodyear, well known among colours and generally considered one of the best. He actually lives not far from me in the Linders Pass, but it took me five visits to find him at home long enough to sit him down for a chat. Even at 89, he's a bundle of energy, away working the sheep, mustering, drafting, repairing fences and everything else associated with being a high country farmer. The day I did manage to pin him down, he was just in, fresh from drafting sheep. You can hear his dogs in the background, still giving voice. I was born and bred on this station here in the Lindus. I guess in those days it was quite isolated. It didn't see many people. I think I was a very shy lad, a bit antisocial. But this was one of the reasons, probably why I became a deer colour, to escape away from social life. The loneliness is one thing that either made or broke a shooter. If he was subject to loneliness, he wouldn't last any time at all. You don't want to see anybody, talk to anybody. You don't want them to see you either. And a funny thing happened one time. It was quite early in the morning too. I'd already had breakfast. Put the billy on the fire, there was a few embers. I thought I'll just have another quick brew before I bugger off. I had to look out the bloody window. Three recreational shooters and coming across the riverbed and I just bloody panicked. Grabbed my rifle, I was going to run. Realised they were going to be out of sight for a few seconds just below this bank. 
hand on the door handle. As soon as the last head disappeared over the back, I shot around the back of the hut because the hut was about three or four hundred yards from the bush. I was just afraid if I'd run for the bush, they'd see me. They come up to the hut and one joke come in the hut. He said, Tuddy, funny thing, he said, there's nobody around, but he said, there's a billy on the fire just coming to the bull. I forgot all about the bloody billy on the fire. I never waited to hear any more bolted for the bloody bush. In the end, he spends the night on the tops, at a safe distance from the hut. John Fleming, a generation later than Gerald, is much the same. If you stayed in, you used to be able to become a hermit anyway. You actually got to the stage you didn't want to see people. Because I ended up most of the time just being a loner, shooting by myself. Didn't want to run into people. Coming down the hunter, you had a big day on the hill and you'd maybe fly camping for a couple of three days and run out of taco and you think, oh, I'll get down to Boundary Hut, feed down here. He's bloody fishermen, there'd be land rovers. And you thought, oh, I've got to go in there, and you'll get the questions. Be, how many did you get? Well, what do you mean today, this week, or over the last few months? Where are you going? You know, what do you do? And, oh, you should be over in Vietnam, you know, you're shooting way over there. Oh, that'd be silly, they'd, they shoot back at you, these ones don't. But uh, I'd actually bypass a hut like that and walk another two hours to find another one that didn't have anybody at it even though I'd had a big, big day on the hill. Fred Dixon also struggles with the isolation. After the first year of the solitude, uh, you know, I made a list of what I was going to bring back, and I wanted to bring back uh, transistor radio. And this transistor radio had four little batteries. They would last me a season if... I only use it for about 10 minutes in the evening. So I'd turn it in about 6 o'clock to get the news, to get uh, what's going on in the outside world. And then I would switch it off because it didn't last very long. I could get two YA or something, but a lot of the time there was too much crackle. I couldn't hear it anyhow. But it helped to keep you sane. Fred sticks it out for eight seasons before quitting. Along with the isolation go the risks of being injured and having to look after yourself. Paddy Gordon is one of the lucky ones. Strangely enough, in the time I was our colour, I never had any real major injuries or anybody that I was with in the blocks never had major injuries. I think we knew that if we made a mistake that was bad, it could be really bad. No helicopters around then, and everybody had to have a big party to come in and get you and carry you out if you broke a bone or broke a leg. So we were all conscious that there was no escape if you had a, um, a bad injury and if you were left out overnight or overnights because uh, we only had a vague idea where you'd be and, and sometimes uh, that was pretty vague. Albie Lewis doesn't break his leg. He isn't that lucky. I pulled two teeth out on different occasions with my pliers. In each case, they came out bit by bit. They were molars, you know, halfway around. It was bloody agony, but it had to be done. There was no way I was going to go bloody, spend another four or five days getting back to base, and then no, no possibility that I might even get into Wanaka after that. 
really, I think you had to be really resolute, eh? you know, bloody-minded. <laughs> Bloody-mindedness is probably putting it mildly, but was a common trait among shooters. As for Dave Richardson, whose parents didn't hold out much hope for his culling career, well, he lasted longer than a week, but finds it far from easy. But one thing that occurred to me, you mentioned that you at some stage you had boils and this other guy had carbuncles. Was that to do with diet? Oh, absolutely. You know, no greens. You see, we, we had all had tin stuff and you don't get the, you know, uh, goodness. Some guys didn't get boils. Uh, some guys did. I was one that did. I had a very big one in my groin and uh, I was wanting to move, you know. I was wanting to, you know, the, the deer were around and I was wanting to move and my body was letting me down. And I got you know, a bit pissed off about this, so so I went down to the main hut and got a bottle and I heated the water up into it until all the steam was coming out of it and then put a wet rag around the top to cool the top down and then put it on the boil and then I put a wet rag on the bottle. And, of course, with that, the, the bottle gets a suction in it inside it. And hell, the pain was just terrible. And then all of a sudden, this, this boil pops out and it had this great hole in my groin, you know, so I shoved it full of bloody iodine or somebody thing and, and put a bandage over it and good, I'm away. Yikes, painful even to hear. Alan Farmer was a tough bugger too. And the term of care with a couple of boys one day, we put an airdrop in. And going up there and I fell down the slips and I couldn't stake up under my ribs. Shit, it was painful. And it was winter. We couldn't just pick up the airdrop. Got to the camp and there was snow on the ground and all we had was a tent. You try and sleep in the cold ground for crook ribs. <laughs> we picked up the airdrop and got all the parachutes and it took us three days to get out. It's a long walk right from in Hizzard's Hamrakelway. I went to the doctor and she said, why didn't you come in straight away and get it done? I said, what, three days walk away? What do you think I am? Sometimes the difference between a near miss and something a lot more serious is measured in inches. I came up from under the kangaroo saddle. There was a heavy snow on the top, on the saddle, and they were looking down into the Lansborough. There was a tar all over the place. And then Lou said, I'll take a photograph. So he took a photograph and he took his pack off and he laid his rifle on top of the pack. <laughs> when he finished taking the photograph, he picked his pack up and the rifle slid off it onto the snow. Then went, whoo, shot down and disappeared out into the Landsborough. So he went running down to try and catch it. And the next thing I was standing there watching it all, <laughs> quite amused. All of a sudden, he just dropped on his hands and knees. So I went down and I looked. There's a 2,000 foot drop down there. And he was sitting on the edge of it. <laughs> and his rifle was down the bottom of it. It's still there. <laughs> Next time, we're at Dip Flat, the tough training course the Forest Service set up to make sure hunters met the grade. Now that I was at Dip Flat, you had to perform. Most of them never lasted. A lot of them got the sack because they couldn't get anything. They never really understood how fit they had to be. 
You could tell them straight off that they weren't going to last. They were too soft. Sometimes you'd push yourself until you're almost flaking out from exhaustion. You either came up to the plate or you were down the road. Being a good shot not the only thing you need to be for a good hunter. Firearm safety, you put one foot wrong and you're down the track. My mother, she wouldn't look me in the eye. She's looking at the ground and she said, you'll be dead in a week. That's next time on Deer Wars. Deer Wars is written and presented by me, Paul Roy. It's engineered by Alex Harmer. The executive producers are Katie Gossett, Justin Gregory and Tim Watkin. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.